I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 65 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Lizzie Cookson. Lizzie is an Associate Director of Cyber Investigations at Kivu Consulting. She specializes in cyber extortions and threat intelligence with a focus on attacker negotiations, threat actor profiling, and data breach remediation. Lizzie's casework has included network intrusions, e-commerce compromises, business email compromise, wire and tax fraud, employee misconduct, and over 150 cyber extortion investigations. Lizzie has over six years of experience in legal services, incident response, and digital forensics. Prior to joining Kivu, she worked in regulatory roles at law firms in Massachusetts and Washington, D.C., while earning her graduate degree in digital forensics. In this episode, we discuss getting started in information security, how attackers have changed their tactics, the changes in ransomware, ransomware as a service, banking trojan, types of cyber criminals, getting started with ransomware response, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, Lizzie, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm doing phenomenal, Doug. Thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, it's my pleasure. And it's uh, I'm glad we get to talk in this forum and not just in a, a client fire drill forum that we, we sometimes have to deal with. So it's much better to have the casual conversations. It's, it's about time we did one of those, yes. Yeah, for, for sure. Um, but, you know, I kind of want to let people go a little bit about your background before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of what, what a day in the life of Lizzie Cookson looks like. But how did you get started with cybersecurity? What was kind of your, uh, your path to greatness? Um, I repeat this story often. Um, the short answer is that I graduated from college and then I ran out of money really quickly. And um, I knew if I went back to school, my loans would be put on hold. <laughs> so I thought, well, if I'm going to do that, I might as well learn a skill that sets me a little bit more apart than learning psychology, not knocking psychology degree. I'm very glad I have that. Um, but I learned that my alma mater, George Washington University, had a digital forensics program. Um, and since I was still in the D.C. area, it just sort of made sense. Um, and then as soon as I started, I realized really quickly um, that it would be a field that would let me pursue my curiosity about not just criminals, but cyber criminals, um, and let me do the investigating that I'd always kind of wanted to do in the criminal justice sphere, but at a desk wearing normal clothes and not being called to do crime scene forensics at two in the morning. So best of both worlds. Very cool. So, I mean, you picked a good field though. I mean, cybersecurity is certainly lucrative enough to pay down the student loans. It's yeah, it's, it's better than, uh, being the admin assistant I was for two years. Again, <laughs> not knocking administrative work. I think it teaches us all great skills, um, but I'm definitely happier where I am now. Gotcha. And so, you know, you, you were a, you've now been at Kivu Consulting for close to three years. Mm-hmm. How did you find that as a path? I mean, I'm certainly sure that people are, are always coming to you saying, you know, how do I get started in the field? Where do you apply for jobs? But how do you even kind of get into the feeder system of a cybersecurity company to find a job. 
you got to talk to people. Um, that, that was the thing I learned really quickly. Even after my third year in the program, I didn't know jobs uh, like this existed in, in cybersecurity. I thought everyone just start, sort of started off doing IT help desk support, uh, you know, looking at tickets, that sort of thing. And then maybe someday you escalate to the more meaty investigations. I thought that was kind of the only path. Um, but fortunately, um, one of the directors here at Kivu also attended the GW program. So he kept his eye on graduates and, and pulled some of us in. And there's actually, I think, a handful of us here now. So that's how I found out that this was an option. Um, and it's, you know, hands-on from day one, which I was really thrilled about. And you've certainly kind of risen to fame here. I mean, you've, you've continued to advance your career and title and get on more responsibility. You know, since your time of joining, you know, as you've kind of moved up the, the proverbial ladder, do you find that you still get to do, you know, that balance of doing the hands-on work as well as the day-to-day admin and managing of cases and well, the people that come with that? I've actually made it a point of continuing to do that hands-on work, even though the positions I moved into are more conducive to delegating that and doing more of a project manager role. Um, I noticed right away that if I was going to continue doing that, my skills would sort of dry up um, and I wouldn't be doing what I really set out to do by getting into this field. So um, I've made sure to keep my hands dirty on a day-to-day basis, um, and that's how I get to do all the fun stuff, like talk to these Ukrainian hackers and ask them what they had for dinner and ask them what they're doing with my clients' data. They're always so you know, nice about telling you that, too, I'm sure. But you know, when, when you look at the, kind of the landscape of some of the work that you initially did versus now, what, what's kind of changed over the past three years with some of the network intrusions? Oh my gosh, that's such a loaded, loaded question. That's what I'm um, here for. It's loaded questions. I just, I, I lob them up. You swing hard at them. So, okay. Um, it's, it's not. The thing is, it's not one linear pattern. It's not like the whole profile of the cyber threat actor has changed from one thing to another. We've seen, or at least I've seen, a rise in two types. Both a rise in opportunistic, sort of sloppy, sort of arrogant new threat actors and a simultaneous rise in really sophisticated, sort of dedicated bad actors who do not mind, you know, doing the long con, doing their homework and going after these big game targets that we've seen so much of in the last six months. And it sort of is unfortunate that those are both rising at the same time because they're different kinds of threats, but they're both really hard to tackle. What makes them particularly harder to tackle? So if I had to choose, I would rather engage with one of these sophisticated big game actors because they have a skill set that allows them to speak to us on the level that we're at and also help us if we need help. Um, And I always get, you know, sort of strange reactions when I talk about attackers being courteous. Um, But a lot of them are in this for the long haul. This is their business. They've chosen to go into the extortion game. um, And it's in their best interest to provide a product consistently. And it gets around the internet very quickly if they are encrypting people's data and then not restoring it and being jerks about it. Um, GanCrab, for instance, um, I don't want to say they're my favorite ransomware gangs. That sounds really creepy. Um, but they are some of the top-notch attackers I've dealt with. They offer their victims a 30-day money-back guarantee if they accidentally reinfect themselves. That's the sort of model I would like to see more often. Um, and the alternative to that is dealing with hackers that are, and, you know, I'm a little speculative here, um, but it just seems like 
these new guys that are on the block are just deciding to get into hacking. It's more accessible than it's ever been with the development of ransomware as a service. You can sign up for ransomware use for essentially free or for you know a $10 entry fee. Um, and they have this kind of unlimited access to a pretty powerful digital weapon, but they don't have the skill set to go with it. And they don't have the honor among thieves that you see in some of the more seasoned actors. Gotcha. And, and I guess you've probably seen a lot of these different attack groups develop over time. Um, and, you know, what, what's different now than, let's say, where it was like 18 months ago, a year ago, in, in general terms, and maybe in some specific threat actors? So what's really different now is, for one, the level of sophistication of cyber attacks. Um, I think my first ransomware case was with the Lockheed ransomware group. And we're talking mid-2016, they charged maybe a third of a Bitcoin. You never actually talked to them face-to-face -face or email-to-email. They just gave you a website. You went to it on tour. You paid, and this little page refreshed with your tool. So there was no must, no fuss. Um, everything decrypted perfectly and everyone moved on with their lives. There wasn't, you know, anything running around on the network. We weren't worried about an actor still snooping. Um, it was just sort of, you know, remind your employees to be better about phishing emails. That model has completely died. The sort of, well, you just got hit with ransomware. Let's move on in 24 to 48 hours. Um, these attacks we're seeing way more reconnaissance effort in advance of the attack, whether it's a few days, weeks, or even months of recon, not just in terms of understanding the target network, but in terms of understanding the financial value of their potential victim. Um, so a lot of the ransomware we're dealing with currently, and we've been dealing with for the last eight months, is that of RIAC and BitPamer ransomware actors. And these are the targeted attacks that we've seen. They charge a minimum, usually of 100,000. We've seen them charge up to 3 million. And that's because they're harvesting financial documents. They're looking at network sizes. They're making judgments about a company's pockets based on the number of employees that, that they have um, and their network size. And they're saying, instead of you know just blindly attacking the world and charging $1,000 here and there, let's spend another two weeks researching this target and take them for all they're worth. Yeah, we've seen certainly uh, some of those interesting documents come up in some of the cases I've worked to where they say, hey, look, we know how much, you know, the financials of the company is or what you what you can afford. And it, it definitely kind of raises the, uh, the hair in your arms where like, ah, they, these are not just somebody that got in through somebody clicking. These tend to be a little bit more uh, advanced actors getting in. And with that, you know, I'm certainly seeing some more... Um, more well-crafted tools or tools that are maybe used in other areas. Can you talk about some of the types of malware or things that kind of ride sidecar or as part of these um, attack and foothold packages that we're seeing in some of the networks? That That's a, such a good topic, and we could probably just do like a two-hour conversation <laughs> on that alone. Um, so I want to sort of divide it into two parts. There's the increase in ransomware toolkits that we've seen. In the old days, it was just you clicked on a phishing email and a, a piece of malware got on the system. Now that we've seen more actors gaining physical access to the networks, they're not just coming with their ransomware executable, they're coming with their entire toolkit of 
um, prep tools. Um, so Crisis Dharma, for instance, they're a ransomware family that have been around forever, but they moved their distribution to a ransomware as a service platform around February or March of last year. And right after that happened, when we were doing our forensics, we noticed this little uh, icon that was sitting on the victim system. And we opened it up and we, you know, we said, what is this? It's this full step-by-step -step guide. And it, the, it's for the layman actor who can just click on a button and it says, hey, did you remember to wipe this victim's volume shadow copies? Don't forget to do that. Hey, did you remember to kill all of the databases and non-Windows services so that you don't you know, deal with database corruption. Don't forget to run Process Hacker. It's these little, like someone has obviously put a lot of time into this and they're providing much more guidance to their actor distributors so that they're upping their game a little bit. So that's the increase in toolkits that we're seeing. And then there's the increase in accompanying malware. And I miss the days maybe 18 months ago where we could tell victims, I know, you know, this is terrible that you've been ransomed, but as soon as we resolve this, that's really the only threat you're dealing with because it was never the case that ransomware came bundled with a second threat, like a backdoor or a Trojan. That's not something we can say anymore. Um, there was the explosion last year of the banking Trojan ransomware partnership. And the visibility into that partnership is still something uh, that we don't have. Maybe federal law enforcement has more visibility than we do. I certainly hope so. Um, but now we know if someone comes to us with a RIAC or a BitPamer or a Hermes infection, there's a 90% chance they have a banking Trojan infection as well. And that is a whole different animal that you have to deal with before you can get operations back up. So something that might have taken 24 to 72 hours to turn around is now taking two plus weeks. And that's mostly because of the persistence mechanisms in these kind of advanced uh, Trojans that are that are either warming or staying at some level of uh, visibility or low visibility, but persistence with inside the network. Exactly. And, and ransomware actually... They're, you know, persistent in the sense that they stick on the system until it's done encrypting. But other than that, they're not actually that hard to remove and they're not that dynamic in their in their methods. Banking Trojans are the exact opposite. They're designed to replicate dynamically. They're polymorphic. They will hide an app data roaming one hour, and then they'll start hiding in the C temp system, you know, something folder with a completely different file name. And those indicators don't just change from victim to victim. They change from computer to computer in a single case. So it's almost impossible to build significant indicators and block based on those when you're trying to get it off the system. And and so you know, kind of kind of with that, I mean, what what are some of the? I'm sure you have to deal with frustrated and excited and upset clients with a mix of emotions at time. But what, what how do you try to you know talk them off the ledge a little bit when they're saying, hey, look, you know, not only my ransom, but now we have this this possible worm. Where do you kind of coach them through a process that kind of gets them to a successful resolution? So I've definitely found that being upfront about timelines is something that is good for everybody. Um, as much as I would like to tell a very frantic client, you know, we can sort this out in 48 hours, don't you worry. When I tell them, all right, well, look, it's actually going to take probably 24 or 48 hours just to get rid of the ransomware. And then we're going to have to take a staggered approach at cleaning your systems and putting things online one by one. So you're more likely looking at one to two weeks of getting your things safely back online. But we get, you know, we give them resources every step of the way. Here are the first five things you can do in the short term. Disable that PowerShell, patch SMB version one, run a password reset. You can do all those things right now while we work on hardening the rest of the network and putting more robust things in place. 
And, and what are some of those, I guess, maybe preventative measures that, that you see? If you kind of look at the, the number of cases that you deal with, the kind of commonalities. And what are some of the things that you see over and over again and say, gosh, they had only put this or done this one thing or maybe a few things that could have really either stopped the uh, ransomware altogether or at least uh, prevented such a level of infection? That, that's such a good and, and important question. And the answer is really boring. <laughs> it's that you need to keep your systems patched. Um, I think every single uh, Trojan case that we've looked at and collected data from, 80% of the environment is vulnerable to SMB version one, the eternal blue exploit. Um, and that's not just servers, that's Windows 7 workstations, even some Windows 10 machines. And not having that patch is just basically welcoming the Trojan to propagate in a matter of minutes. If you have nothing patched, maybe it gets on that workstation because someone clicked it, but it doesn't get much further than that. Um, second thing, and this is less about prevention, but more about mitigation, having multi-factor authentication enabled on all your critical resources is at least going to make it very difficult for these bad actors to do any useful damage with the things that they're collecting. Now, you know, I, that's not a foolproof method. There are ways around two-factor and multi-factor, but it's all about making it harder at every stage for the bad actors to either get in or to move around once they've gotten in. Are we still seeing a number of attacks coming in? You know, when they're coming in, if they're not, let's put it this way, if they're not coming in through email, what, what are some of the attack vectors that, that you commonly see from a perimeter security perspective? So before I answer that, are you referring to all malware or are you referring to ransomware? It's like ransomware, you know, targeted ransomware attacks, let's say. Mm-hmm. I think, um, and this is sort of a conundrum because I, it's not something that we can really show. It's sort of the absence of evidence that leads me to think this. Um, I think we've seen a spike in the reliance on exploit kits. And we know uh, GAN, Crab, and Crack Encryptor rely heavily on them, and they switch up the ones that they use from attack to attack. I think RIG is the exploit kit that GAN, Crab started out with, seeing much more of Grandsoft since then. And those are going after vulnerabilities like Internet Explorer. JavaScript. Um, I can't remember the other one. I was just looking into this. But anyways, exploit kits leave much fewer footprints. They're much harder to detect and prevent than, say, an RDP brute force attack that's going to leave a mess of evidence all over your logs. And that's an easy thing to close out. So increase in exploit kits. Um, and it, definitely phishing has come back, but not in the traditional way where it's this really obvious, suspicious Word document that also has an EXE on the end. Much more subtle uh, phishing attacks where they're actually just prompting you to click a link that looks really legitimate. It brings you to a landing page that looks legitimate. And when you enter your credentials, they're using those later to get in, or it brings you to the landing page where the malware is then downloaded in the background. So phishing is back, but a little more creatively than it was two years ago. And when you, you mentioned some of the exploit kits, and obviously these are you know kits that people can get on the internet, what's changed about that marketplace that's made the use of them so more much more prevalent than they have in the past? Well, oddly enough, I, th- um, I think it's because people have gotten smarter about cybersecurity collectively. Um, I know for us at Kivu, 2017 was the year of brute force RDP attacks. Uh, I'm not kidding. 99% of the attacks we dealt with came in that way through an open RDP port. And that year, you know, I went around, I did a lot of speaking, I did a lot of panels, and I pounded my fist and I said, nobody should have RDP open. Come on, everyone. Let's, you know, remember that that's not a good idea. Let's get your VPNs in place. And I noticed in 2018, 
interesting when we ask those clients who've been affected on the first call, hey, do you use unsecure RDP? A lot of them were saying, oh, no, we got rid of that. You know, we use this VPN solution now. We're really good about that. But the problem is, as we all collectively get smarter about our cybersecurity, attackers are inevitably going to start adapting with us, right? So the initial group of low-hanging fruit in 2016, which were the people with RDP open, that pool of targets shrinks and the attackers look around and maybe they say, okay, what's the next one? Let's you know get a little bit smarter. Let's work a little bit harder and let's go after the next round of vulnerabilities. So those people who have VPNs that might've been safe in 2016 because they weren't the most obvious targets, now they become a potential pool. And let's talk about maybe some of the, you know, you touched on it a little earlier about some of the less sophisticated attackers, but what's the the uh, kind of the black market and online model that they're seeing uh, referred to as, you know, ransomware as a service, but kind of step us through a little bit on that, uh, how that's working, where maybe the folks that don't know how to use the best exploit kits are getting involved. And I think ransomware as a service you have to be really careful in how you talk about it because you can use it really well and you can use it really poorly. Um, but essentially, it's a profit-sharing distribution model for ransomware where instead of you, Doug, coming to me on the dark web and saying, Lizzie, I want to buy your ransomware for this you know, one-time fee, you come to me and say, Lizzie, I want to sign up for your ransomware as a service platform. And I say, okay, Doug, you can have as much access to my platform as you want, but I'm going to divert 20% of every ransom you collect to my wallet. Now, this is where things start to diverge from sophisticated platforms to bad platforms. If you're sort of maybe a lazy developer, you say, I'm just going to kick back and take 20% of every ransom and I'm not going to do any other work. Well, that problem there is that you're not doing any screening for one. You're not screening your applicants and ruling out people that are just going to cause damage or be arrogant or be inconsistent. So you have sort of a higher likelihood to have volatile actors distributing your malware and ruining your reputation. Um, and if you're not doing any work on your sample, you're not improving your methods over time. GANCRAB and Crack Encryptor, who are sort of the two I use as the golden shining example of RAS operators, they are fiercely dedicated to updating their payload. Kraken releases a new build every 15 days to their distributors to make sure it's resistant to any new AV signatures out there. Um, GANCRAB has a reputation for kicking people off their platform if they're either jerks and they don't abide by the terms of service or if they're underperforming and they don't hit enough victims a week. So they keep their teams very tightly controlled um, and only invite sort of vetted hackers. I think one of them actually requires a sort of CV of past ransom operations that you've been involved in so they can see that you know what you're doing. So you have to have a very, very robust uh, ransomware uh, LinkedIn profile before they'll let you in. I think that's what they're looking for. Well, I mean, it, joking aside, I mean, I think that's what people maybe don't appreciate as much that these are not, um, you know, kind of smash and grab operations. These are well thought out uh, criminal enterprises. Mm hmm. Definitely. And so that also leads to something where, where, you know, where folks, I think, are always surprised to hear that there's support systems. Uh, you know, there's things like uh, help desks lines and, and forms where you can get help from the attackers where they'll want to uh, make sure that, you know, the victims can actually get their um, their data back. Is that pretty common now? 
For some strains, yes. For the ones that care, even a smidge, definitely seeing an effort in customer service and help desk support, both for the actors, the criminal actors, and also for the victims. Um, so for instance, some groups that we talk to uh, over email during an attack, when we finish the transaction, we pay and everything, the actor will say, okay, good luck. We'll keep the email open for two weeks. Ping us if you have any issues. And they'll actually walk us through decryption problems. They'll ask us for screenshots of errors and work with us. Um, a few months back, I think it was in December, Crisis Dharma was having a glitch in their tool. They were giving out a bad one. The key was fine. The tool was bad. We were showing them the errors um, and they said, you know what? Our bad. We gave you a wrong tool. Give us an hour. And they came back and they gave us the right one. You know, no extra fees, no jerking us around. Um, and that's honestly more the norm than the volatile sort of screw you actors that are just out to be destructive as opposed to, you know, collecting revenue that they intend to keep collecting and, you know, building a reputation for themselves. And, and with these becoming more, you know, say criminally organized uh, or operations that they are, there was a, a recent kind of takedown of a network, um, you know, with um, U.S. law enforcement about Sam Sam. Mm -hmm. Kind of talk about that story arc and what that means for maybe future attack groups. And is this going to be, you know, signal of more things to come? I think it is a signal of more things to come. Um, so yes, Sam, Sam, I think they announced the indictment right at the end of November. And it's not just two random Sam, Sam operators. I think it's the two main ones, or at least that's what law enforcement believes. Um, and they credited those two actors with all of the Sam, Sam attacks over the last few years. Um, and it was pretty significant when that was announced. It's kind of the first indictment of its kind, as far as I understand. And Sam, Sam attacks fell completely silent for, for us right after that. Um, and they had been one of our most uh, popular groups that we had to deal with up until that point. Um, one of the things I, I hope might be helping, you know, on the law enforcement side is an increase in visibility into some of these actors. Because like I said, we're seeing a simultaneous rise, the sophisticated uh, long haul actors, but also sort of the excited newbies who just really want to get into ransomware, but they're not as cautious about hiding their identities or hiding their locations. Um, I think in the in the old days when we were dealing with probably the developer almost face to face, um, they were very cautious, did not talk much, did not really give anything away about themselves. But as time goes on, uh, we saw a much bigger shift and, you know, actors willing to say, hey, I, I didn't write this malware. I'm really sorry. You know, my boss is, is not going to be online for the next 24 hours. And that might not seem that interesting at the time. But if you build kind of profiles, you know, I'm picturing my cork board with all my string and whatever. Um, as you build clues like that over time, you can actually get a pretty good idea of what their infrastructure is. And that helps law enforcement immensely in these ultimate takedowns. And how, you know, from a private sector investigator, how, how cooperative or willing to help is law enforcement? I think that's always the kind of one of those questions we get early on a lot of these calls is, should we call the FBI? Should we call law enforcement? You know, mm -hmm. what, which groups? But you know, what's kind of been your, your relationship with law enforcement as you've kind of worked through with some of these criminal gangs? I've found law enforcement um, nothing but incredibly cooperative and willing to assist. Um, and I, I don't always know if if the folks we if the folks we work with on a daily basis uh, see that. Um, and I maybe it's because they're coming from the perspective of well, if I tell the FBI that I got 
held for ransom for $30,000. Isn't that just a waste of my time? You know, are they really going to track these guys down? Um, but I always, I always encourage victims to fill out the IC3 complaint form um, at at least because it's just adding to law enforcement's cache of really critical indicators. I mean, they can find out incredible things just with a Bitcoin wallet or a transaction hash. And when you have, you know, 100, 200, 1,000 victims reporting all of this information, that is going to help them pin down these guys at the, you know, at the end of the day or the end of the year. Um, and there's even some opportunity for uh recovery of funds. And that's that's something law enforcement's expressed to me is, you know, if, if we ever get these guys and we have victim reports, we can get some of this money back to them. And I guess that goes a little bit to, you know, law enforcement and kind of a larger geopolitical issue. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of vetting sometimes that needs to be done before you even kind of pay some of these attackers. So you know, what are the steps that organizations have to think of before they just start, you know, paying these people? You know, what are some of the, the risk factors that are even out there? Yeah, and this this is something that was a black box to me for a long time, um, but much more vigilant, you know, about it now. Which is that you you can't knowingly pay a ransom to a ransomware actor um, if you have how do I put this? If you have reasonable knowledge that they are part of a sanctioned list or they're part of a known sanctioned group, terrorist group, that sort of thing. So you have to collect all the indicators you can on that actor prior to payment and make sure that they're not coming up on these sanctioned lists. Um, so the first thing we do is is do blockchain analysis on their Bitcoin wallets. Um, a lot of actors, especially the big game hunters, they will create new wallets for every victim. So there's not much to look at there, zero transactions. It's just sort of one and done. Um, but Globe Imposter, for instance, I had a wallet last year that went back to 2014. It had something like 300 transactions to it. So we get really granular into where their money's coming from and where it's going. Um, and as long as it's not going to terrorist funding, um, that's that's generally means it's, it's okay to in, initiate that payment as long as none of the other indicators link them to a sanction group. You know, in, in your history, there's there's obviously there's a lot of anonymized uh, methods of communications and outside of band communication channels that these attackers use. They're using Tor networks, VPNs. They do a decent amount to, con to conceal their identities. But is there a suspicion that you have that they might be coming from a particular region in the world, one that you mentioned before that starts with a U that's maybe <laughs> protected by another person? Yeah. Absol yeah, absolutely. Um, so in terms of IP, um, and geographical location, that's really easy to fake. Um, but when you look closely at their windows of responsiveness, uh, especially when they're consistent across two weeks of communicating, when you look at how their communication is coming off to us, it's, it's really easy to tell if they're using a translator. And it's especially easy to tell, at least with their, lang their native languages, because sometimes not everything translates properly and they'll leave in a Russian word or Ukrainian word. And that's sort of, okay, kind of a giveaway of, of where they're probably coming from. Um, but other than that, I mean, we don't generally run into actors that are silly enough to leave behind their calling card or an address or anything like that. Yeah, they don't necessarily ask for a very good, uh, robust Yelp review uh, once they're done, <laughs> even in the best circumstance where they're helpful. But, you know, it's it almost seems kind of odd that, you know, they do operate within some of these countries that they have, are, are somewhat known. They do have kind of this reputation. Do you think, you know, as we've seen maybe with this one Sam Sam group, that there could be further crackdown over time with some of these, you know, maybe some of the bigger game hunters being taken out or even smaller groups where there can almost be uh, market consolidation or removal of people from either just entire geographic regions? 
I hope that it, as the big game hunters uh, continue to do what they're doing, that they become easier to pin down. Because it's a, at least in my mind, it's a lot harder to maneuver that level of funds than it is to maneuver a couple thousand dollar transactions here and there. Um, but at the same time, like I said, we're also seeing a much bigger increase in collaboration and sophistication. Um, so it's not just actors you know, trying to evade law enforcement for themselves, they are partnering up and they're partnering up with groups that maybe do obfuscation and hiding better than they do. Um, so I, I, I feel like they're always in step with us. Um, and the trick is to just pull what we can and, and try to anticipate the next step. And what do you think some of the next things are going to be over the next, you know, 12 to 18 months? I mean, if you looked into Lizzie's crystal ball of ransomware, you know, there's a lot of things that are changing in environments where we see more cloud. Uh, we're seeing a lot of people moving even just, you know, their basic cloud email infrastructure or their on-premise email infrastructure to the cloud where there's this greater shift to get it outside of environments. Do you think just overall computer architecture is going to decrease uh, these attackers from even being able to do what they've been able to do traditionally? Whew. Um, oh, I, the, the future crystal ball questions always trip me up because <laughs> I have trouble anticipating what it's going to be in the next few weeks. Um, but I, we, I mean, we're seeing creativity where I think maybe two years ago, I was sort of resigned to the idea that attackers were always going to be sort of lazy. They were always going to go after these vulnerabilities that had always been around because people are always going to use them. Um, but as I said, as I said last year, I really noticed that people were kind of upping their, upping their game security wise, they were being a lot more vigilant. Um, but instead of actors backing off, it's almost just, they're taking on the challenge more, they're devising more creative methods. Um, so one of the, I think the scariest trends we've seen in just the last few months is instances of, um, third party contractors, third-party IT firms getting hit with ransomware, not themselves, but all of their customers. So if you use platforms like GoToAssist or, or Screen Connect to service your clients, if you don't have multi-factor authentication or good password policies protecting that platform, we've seen attackers get in that way three times and deliver ransomware to at least a dozen victims in each case. Um, and that, that, I mean, that's a mess and that's a much faster hit than just hitting one entity, but it's made really easy by these web platforms. Um, so uh, as always with convenience, with ease, there's always going to be more security vulnerabilities. Um, and it's just a matter of trying to think ahead of that and never thinking that you're not a target or not vulnerable or that they have bigger fish to fry. Everyone should consider themselves a potential target. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's it's a challenge because you always feel at least one step behind them, and they're always getting creative, thinking of new ways. And unfortunately, we don't find out about their new ways until they launch their attacks, right? So you know, if I'm I'm fresh out of uh, fresh out of college, come from a cybersecurity program, and I want to get involved with ransomware, where do I even start trying to learn about this? Um, I, I, it's funny; it's one of those things. Until I really started working closely with you and your team. I had enough knowledge about it. I've obviously seen the cybersecurity for years, but didn't realize there's a lot of granularity to it. There's a lot of um, just institutional knowledge that one has to gain. But where, where would somebody go out and start trying to say, hey, maybe this is a, a area of cybersecurity I want to become more involved with? So the resources I look at probably the most often to stay up to date um, are bleeping computers, this week in ransomware reports. Uh, they tend to be pretty 
timely in reporting new variants, new extensions, new issues that people are reporting. Um, and Michael Gillespie's Twitter account is is where everyone is really great about reporting their issues and reporting new vectors that they're seeing. Um, and I think Michael Gillespie's is probably the highest in terms of accuracy that I've ever seen. Um, so just starting with those two resources is good. It's actually, I think it's pretty hard um, for me to recommend how you should get into ransomware because there is so much misinformation about it on the web. Ransomware is not intuitive and knowing what I know and then going out and looking at you know, security blogs um, that aren't closely fact-checked, it's really frustrating because um, people think they can just make conclusions. Well, you have ransomware. It was probably through a phishing email. That was a major problem up until last year. It was really frustrating for me to see things reported that way when I know that that ransomware group has never relied on phishing to gain entry. Um, so you have to be really, uh, I keep using this word, you have to be really vigilant and criti a critical thinker when you're reading about current threat trends. Um, and look at the article and make sure they're not just saying, well, it probably happened this way or or usually it happens this way, look to see if they're actually citing their research, citing their sources, um, and can back that up with real case studies. And you, you touched on one thing, too, is the, the kind of there's a lot of common misconceptions that are out there. I mean, if you had to pick a couple of the ones that people normally think about ransomware when, when you, you know, hear these stories, what, what are some of the, you know, the kind of wash and repeat, uh, maybe not mm. falsity, but, you know, just rumors, let's say, about people like, like to you know, expound upon ransomware, but they might not know what the truth is. I think the number one for me is that um, you can decrypt that with a free tool. Or, okay, you got hit with ransomware, go ahead and, and use this, this one blog's weird off-brand decryption tool. Um, the only vetted central repository for real decryption tools is nomoreransom.org. Um, that is a resource that was put together by Interpol and Dutch law enforcement. Um, and those tools have been tested and they actually work. A lot of them are for legacy strains that don't really apply anymore. Um, because, you know, if we know that it's there, you bet the attackers know it's there too. So they're usually not careless enough to attack with something that's decryptable. Um, but I've had a lot of clients do a lot more damage than good by just quickly Googling how to decrypt Dharma, finding a fake Dharma tool and causing a lot of damage to their system. Those are usually cleverly branded as ransomware removal tools, um, and it sort of makes it sound like it can make ransomware go away. Wow. What that means is that it's basically a threat removal tool like antivirus, and it's just going to find the executable and remove it. It's not going to do anything to unlock your files, and usually you don't find that out until you've already spent 24 hours trying to use it. So the first thing I always ask my client, one of the first thing I ask my clients on the phone is, have you tried any free decryption tools? No? Okay, great. Please don't. Um, <laughs> let, us, let us do our thing. Thing. And if there is a free decryption solution, we'll be the first to tell you. Um, and while I'm there, uh, GANCRAB, actually, there was a free decryption tool released for three versions of it in October, but it is no longer effective for the version five that's currently hitting people. Gotcha. Are there, are there some other common steps, too, that, that folks, when they are hit, they should take? You know, you mentioned not, um, you know, not trying to run free tools, or what are some of the other things that, as an investigator, you start getting in the environment, and you're like, why did they do that? 
So this is less of, of you know, what not to do in your environment perspective, um, but what not to do from a communication perspective. Uh, we worked a case last spring uh, where the actor, bad actor, had created a unique email for that company. So what that means is that if anyone reaches out to that email, the attacker knows what company they're from. So unbeknownst to us, we're doing negotiations on the back end. A, uh, maybe a, you might say a vigilante employee at that company thought that they would reach out privately and give them a, um, a sort of speech about their ethics and about their behavior. And the attacker came back to us and said, you know what, someone's mouthing off to me. And just for that, you owe me another $10,000. Um, otherwise, I'm going to come back and attack you. And we, you know, we brought it up to the company and we said, has anyone been talking to the attacker without telling us? Um, and I think they ended up uh, just paying the extra 10K just for peace of mind. Um, so there's a lot, that's, that's part of, you know, the struggle with this is I, I get very desensitized to it because I work with it all the time. And the of course, the impetus is to be outraged and to be um, loud when you talk to the attackers. But that's that's exactly the reason we're brought in is to not aggravate, not escalate, keep things as level as possible so that we're not getting into sticky situations like that. Gotcha. All very sage advice, Lizzie. So where can people find you on the uh, interwebs and, and some of the stuff that you've uh, at least published on ransomware and, and attackers? Um, definitely on the Kivu website. Um, my information is there and our, our blog is where I've published some of our regular, um, updates on ransomware. I posted a couple last year on sort of the three deadliest ransomware strains, the ones that, you know, don't decrypt or the ones that give us the most problems. Um, done a little bit on ransomware as a service and, uh, I'm probably going to be putting out some more soon. Awesome. I will obviously be sure to put that all in the show notes so people can find that stuff easily. And uh, I thank you so much for your insight on this stuff. Like I said, it's it's being uh, being in cybersecurity for a long time, but really just spending time within the past two years, it's it's been eye opening to see what what this industry is like and the level of sophistication a lot of these attackers have. I agree. I agree. All right. Well, thank you so much, Lizzie. Thanks, Doug. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.